Well, good morning. It is so good to have you guys here today. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Brian Hoss, I'm the pastor here, and uh, we love what we get to do on Sunday. We love being able to be together, pray together, sing, worship together, open God's word together. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for letting that be part of your day today. Uh, so this was a couple weeks ago. Uh, my family and I, we don't tend to venture too, too far south. Uh, there's construction and lots of people, and it's just like, you know what, we're just going to stay up here. Uh, but every now and then we find a reason to go a little further down into downtown. And when we go, we have an absolute blast, and we're glad we did. And we said, man, we should do this more often. And then we try to get back home. And then I say, this is why we never go down here. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, we were downtown at a Braves game, and we're on our way back home, and it's late, it's dark, uh, signs are a little bit off because of all the construction that's always going to be in there for all of eternity. And as we make our way up, it's like I've got Becky trying to give me directions to point out which direction we need to go. I've got Siri barking at me, tell me telling me which way to go. And then all of my kids in the back think they all know how to get home from downtown Atlanta. So I got all these people telling me what to do. And there's a lot of traffic, a lot of construction. Like I said, it's late and dark. So I end up unintentionally veering off into the, onto a wrong exit. And I realized it not immediately, but as I was taking this exit, which I thought said for 400 North, then I realized, wait, 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 no, 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 I need to be over there. But, but it was too late, right? It was too late. So I'm going this way and I see where I should have been, but I see the road that I'm on. And in that moment, I had a choice to make. Choice number one, well, kids, we uh, took the wrong way and we're going to stay going this direction. I'm not going to mess with trying to figure out how to get back over to 400. Uh, who knows when we'll see home ever again. This is going to be an adventure. We're just going to take it one mile at a time and see what happens between now and who knows when. That's option one, which sounded pretty good in the moment, I'll just say. Option number two would have been, choice number two is, okay, so I went this way and I should have gone that way. So now I need to work on getting back over on the right road so that we can eventually get home. We're probably going to get home later than we wanted, but I need to get on the right road so we can actually make it home at some time tonight. Those are the two choices, right? And, and I bring that up because there's a truth, not just in driving on 400 North from Atlanta, there's another truth that we see throughout God's word, and it's a truth that we wrestle with daily in our own lives. Here's the truth. Even when you go the wrong direction, even when you go the wrong way, there's always a way back. Amen. Always. Always, even though it might sound more difficult, even though it might not be so certain, and you're like, man, I'm going to have to rearrange and adjust, and it's going to be maybe even a little bit difficult in the moment, man, it would have been a whole lot easier to just stay going on the wrong road. That would have been a whole lot easier. I wouldn't have had to figure it all out and get back on GPS and pull over. I mean, it would have been a lot easier to just say, ah, we'll just see where this road takes us. But I wanted to get home. I desperately wanted to get home. And so I was willing to figure it out, to take the time to get on the right road so that we could eventually get home. We've been studying Psalms this whole summer. We have today and then we have next week and then we'll move on to a new series. But as we've been going through Psalms, we've learned a couple things. One is that the response is always worship. The response in no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, our response is always the same. It's always worship. And as we look at the different psalms, there's different authors that write uh, the different poems and songs that we read throughout psalms. The psalm we're going to look at today is Psalm 51, 
We know a lot about this psalm, actually. We're going to talk a lot about it. This psalm was written by David, and it was written by David in a very intentional and specific time in his life for a very specific and intentional purpose. We're going to talk about it. But before we jump into Psalm 51, I want to remind us, uh, if you've not been with us, I want you to see these for the first time, the three questions we've been asking every time we open up and study Psalms. The reason these are important to ask is because if you're not careful, not just with Psalms, but with any scripture, yeah, 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 I've heard that. I'm just going to read through it real quick. Asking these questions as you study Psalms causes you to have to stop and pause and to lean in just a little bit more. And that's what I want from you today. We're going to lean in. Whether you know Psalm 51 or not, we're going to lean in a little bit further. So the first question, what will you praise God for? We just said, the response is always worship. So God, even when I'm on the wrong way, even when I'm having a difficult time getting back on the right road, what can I praise you for? We're going to see quite a bit. What truth is being taught? We're going to see that truth that I just shared. Even when you're on the wrong way, even when you're going the wrong way, there's always a way back. We're going to see that truth being shown throughout Psalm 51 in David's life and his story today. And then lastly, what do you need to ask God? Right? When we study Psalms, when we lean in and truly study, not just read them, but study Psalms, it should impact our prayer life. It should impact our dialogue and conversation with God. And we're going to see David through Psalm 51. He's going to ask God a lot. And you're going to see how his prayer life has significantly changed. Here's what we need to do, though. Before we jump into Psalm 51, we need to go back a little bit to see why David wrote Psalm 51. We need to see the story. We need to understand where he was that caused him to write this beautiful psalm of worship. And what you're going to see is David did just that like I did. He got on the wrong path. He got on the wrong road. But we're going to see David through Psalm 51 make his way back to God. So to see where this all started, we're actually going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to see what happened with David as he got off the right path, made his way onto the wrong path, and all that entails. Now, as we read this, we're just going to do this in a short section here. I want you to pay attention to the progression. It doesn't just happen overnight. It was not just a one mistake. It was a compilation of bad choices and sinful choices that led him to where he ended up. Let's look at it real fast before we get to Psalm 51. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, look where David was. David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Like I said, there's a progression here. It wasn't just all of a sudden he made this mistake. It wasn't just all of a sudden he had this change of heart or committed the sin of adultery. There's a progression. So I want to bring up the progression, not because we're going to like focus mainly on that, but it helps us see the progression of him coming back to God later on in Psalm 51. So we're going to see the steps that he takes to go on the wrong path. Then we're going to see the steps he takes to get back on the right track with God. Here they are real quick, and we can relate to these. Regardless whether you relate to the exact same sin David committed or not, we all will relate to the steps and the progressions that leads to sin. Here they are. Here's the first one. Carelessness. He was very careless. Notice at the very beginning, we're told when all the other kings go out to war, David stayed back. David sent somebody else in his stead. In other words, David 
not doing what he was called to do as king. He was not leading the way he was supposed to lead. He did not take on the responsibilities like he should have. He got a little bit lazy. He got a little bit careless and said, I just want to stay home. I don't want to do all this king stuff. Somebody else take care of it. And we notice that in our own lives that oftentimes when we're tired, we start to get a little bit more careless. When we're exhausted, we start to let go of our certain leadership roles and our responsibilities, and it gets us into trouble. So that was step one. He was careless. Careless led into curiosity, right? Now, just give you a little context here. When it says that he was up on the roof, there was a reason he was up on the roof. It's not like you and I just getting up on the roof with the houses that we have today. So David lived in the palace. So his roof was here. All the other people's homes roof were down here. So this is David having some unhealthy and even dangerous curiosity. He starts to say, well, I mean, I wonder what I'll see if I happen to wander around the highest part in my neighborhood. I wonder what I might happen to see. That is a dangerous level of curiosity. And you add that to his carelessness and a little bit of lazy. Notice it was late afternoon and then he got up for his late. And I was like, you're not out fighting more. Why do you need a nap? Now, please don't mishear me. I love naps. We had kids camp this last week. We had our middle school camp. I took a nap yesterday. But it didn't come out of, well, I've got like nothing else to do. Like you can see that, right? Careless, some laziness that led into a dangerous curiosity. We're even told that he noticed this woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And at that moment, his curiosity could have, you know what? I should not be curious about her. I need to just go back inside and mind my own business. Instead, he leaned into his curiosity, which leads to our third step, contemplation. He no longer was just curious. He wasn't just careless. Now he was lingering. In fact, he wanted to know more about her. He sent somebody to find out, tell me more who this lady is that I saw up here. I want to know more. Like, who is she? And I know where she lives. I've seen that. But who is she? And again, we come to another moment where David could have stopped. and said, No, this isn't right. If he finds out that she's married, finds out even who her dad is, it's kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? He find, wanted to know who she is. And one of his servants says, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. You don't want to mess with her dad. And the husband, David, she has a husband, Uriah the Hittite, you know, that guy in your army. So he had a moment to say, no, no I'm taking this too far. But that contemplation, that lingering is what led him to this, the fourth step, which is the action, right? We would say commission. There's sins of commission. There's sins of omission. Sins of omission, when you don't do the things that you should. Sins of commission, you do the things you should not. He knew it was wrong, but it was step after step after step, and you see the progression that led to his sin. Not just the sin of adultery, also the sin of abusing his power and his position as king, as leader of God's people. I want you to see that progression uh, written in a different form. James chapter one, the brother of Jesus wrote this sin progression a little bit differently. He uses these words. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. It's exactly what happened to David. He had this desire, he was getting careless. And then they enticed him. I'm a little bit more curious. And then it eventually dragged him away to a place that he did not intend to end up. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Even with David's story here, if you keep reading, 
you'll see that David's sin did not end there with sleeping with Bathsheba. Because now he had to cover this whole thing up. Now he had to hide this sin of his. And as you try to hide and cover up sin, do you know what you end up doing more of? Sin. You sin to cover up the sin. Then you have to sin more to cover up that sin. And it becomes this web of lies, deceit, and as James described it, ultimately death. If you keep reading through his story, he tries to cover up his sin by bringing the husband back and trying to have them spend some quality time together. That doesn't work. So it ends up, if you don't know the story, with David having her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. So that if we can get rid of Uriah, the husband, then he can just take Bathsheba as his wife and no one will ever know. Something that started out as a lustful thought turned into abuse of power and position, the sin of adultery, all the way to the sin of lies and murder. I want you to see how this part of the story ends. David thinks he's got it all covered up. Uh, that tends to be our natural tendency. When we, when we sin, we want no one to know. We hide it. We cover it up. We see that in the garden with Adam and Eve as well. Verse 26 out of chapter 11, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned him. But when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. So at that point, David's like, whew, dodge that bullet. Glad we got that taken care of. That sin, covered up. That sin, hidden. No one will ever know. But then we see this verse, the end of this verse here. We're told, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So even though David thought he had it taken care of, even though he thought he fixed it on his own, even though he thought he had hidden it well and covered it up, the Lord was displeased with what David had done. No matter the effort we go to cover up our sins, God knows. We are fully transparent with God. We are fully vulnerable to God. Our hearts are laid bare before him. He knows all things about us. We cannot hide from God. We cannot cover up from God. So God wants David to know that he knows so if you read in chapter 12, we're not going to read through it. Read it on your own. It'd be great for you to read all of this in context here later. But in chapter 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan's job is basically to say, David, we know what you did. David, God knows, more importantly, God knows what you did. And Nathan does that by telling a story. And you can read all that again in chapter 12. But at the end of the story, Nathan looks at David and says, we know what you've done. We know you committed adultery. We know you had Uriah the Hittite killed. God knows. And now we're at a new point in David's story, right? Again, the choice of I'm on the wrong road, I'm on the wrong path, I can just keep going the wrong way. Or I realize and I admit that I'm on the wrong path and I need to run to God. David has that same choice. Nathan says, God knows what you did. And oftentimes our response can just be to, to run away right? To stay on the wrong path, to start making excuses. No, it's not exactly what you think. You don't have the whole story. But we see David do something beautiful here. Chapter 12, verse 13, David's response when he was called out on his sin. Verse 13, then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. What a beautiful confession. I mean, that. it is a beautiful statement. David doesn't go into making explanation, giving explanations. 
well, like I was really tired and I know I should have been at war, but man, I mean, you, nobody else knows what it's like to be king and I needed to rest and I know I probably shouldn't have done that, but I mean, it wasn't that bad. It could have been a lot worse. He doesn't start making excuses. He doesn't rationalize it away. He says, yes, I have. I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't minimize it. Well, it's not that big of a deal. He doesn't try to weigh the good and the bad. Well, I mean, yes, technically I was wrong with this one, but look at all the other good things that, I mean, I, I took care of Goliath and look at all the trust in you, God, that I've given before. So, I mean, no one's perfect. He doesn't try to weigh out the good and the bad. He's so honest with such humility. David confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied back, the prophet of God replied back, yes. I love that he didn't just say, well, I mean, no big deal. Glad you at least admitted it. He says, yes, what you did was terrible. What you did was absolutely wrong and it was a sin against the Lord. Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. So he acknowledged it, but then pointed him to hope. Now, if you keep reading through the rest of chapter 12, you'll see that David still has consequences for his sin. And you might be confused, like, but doesn't the Bible just say that God forgave him? Absolutely. But our actions still cause destruction and have ripples around the people around us. For example, uh, you leave church today and you're so hungry, you just like speed over to Chipotle. You just blow through the light and speed through it. You get pulled over. And you look at the officer that pulls you over and you said, officer, I'm so sorry. I've already prayed to God and asked for forgiveness and he's forgiven me. That officer is going to look at you and say, I'm glad God forgave you. Here's your ticket. Okay. Sometimes we look at forgiveness as a, well, that means no consequences. No, when God forgives you, he takes away your eternal consequence. We still have consequences we have to deal with here on earth because our sin impacts other people. So that's what David is going to have to deal with later. But I don't want you to miss, the Lord has forgiven you. And some of you just need to hear that. The Lord's forgiven you. The Lord's forgiven me. And that confession that David gives is what gets us finally, halfway through today, Psalm 51. So if you got your Bible, be in Psalm 51. All of that to help us get to the confession of David. Because even though what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12 was just a sentence, David leans in a lot further, and it's a beautiful confession of David moving back towards God. Once again, even when we go in the wrong direction, there's always a way back. This is David's confession of running back to God in the midst of his sin. Here we go. Psalm 51, starting in, well, technically we're going to start before verse 1. This is where we get the context of this psalm. We're told this is for the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So right there, before even we start, we see the context, which is what we just went through. Now here's David's confession. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the sin of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. I love this is how David begins. He begins on calling out, crying out to God, but based on who God is. Let me help you understand what David's really saying here. We translate this first verse, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. The original language, there's a Hebrew word that David uses. It's a very, very powerful and significant word. It is the word hesed. So literally David is crying out to God, have mercy on me, O God, because of your hesed. 
And we do not have a great word to truly translate hesed. Hesed is not just a feeling. It's not just loving and emotions. It's not just kindness and being nice. Hesed speaks to the very character that's woven into the person of God, the deity of God and who he is. It's not have mercy on me, O God, because of all these things that you do. It's have mercy on me, O God, because of who you are. It's because of your hesed. It's because of your character. It's because this is who you are, God. And I know you are merciful and kind and compassionate and you have unfailing love. But he's calling on the character of God. Notice David doesn't say, have mercy on me, O God, because I'm your chosen king. It's not have mercy on me, O God, because I'm really sorry and I won't do it again. It's not have mercy on me, O God, because look at all the other things I did well. It's not have mercy on me, O God. I'll make it up to you in some way. I'm so sorry. It's have mercy on me, O God, because that's who you are. Because of your said, because of your character. This has nothing to do with who David is. It has everything to do with who God is. He says, God, I know who you are. And because of that, I'm calling on your mercy. It's basically David saying, I need a savior. I can't save myself, so I need someone to save me from my sins. I need someone to rescue me, and I can't do that on my own, so I'm gonna call upon you because that's who you are. You are savior. Verse three, David digs in a little bit to now the sin. He needs a savior because he's a sinner. This is what we see. Verse three, David writes, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. This is an interesting section because David is really describing um, not just in the definition of sin, but also like how he's interacting with his sin. So for him to say, I've rebelled against you, I recognize my rebellion. He's saying this is not just a mistake. This is not just, well, we're all sinful. We all make mistakes and we'll try to do better next time. He's like, no, this sin, God, is a rebellion against you. I'm going against you. And he says, I recognize that. Again, he doesn't minimize it. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't rationalize it away. Well, he just caught me in a bad day. It was just a moment. He says, no, I recognize my rebellion. And then he begins to describe sin. So let me describe sin in two ways. Both are going to be helpful here. The first one is like the meaning of the word. We really don't use sin outside of a church or biblical context, right? Uh, we use mistakes, imperfections, all kinds of different words. Sin, literally the word, it's an archery term. So sin literally means miss the mark. So picture that. If we had a big, uh, a big bullseye, right? And then you shoot an arrow. If you hit anywhere except the bullseye, that is the picture of sin. You have missed the mark. You did not hit what you were supposed to hit. Even if you were really close, you did not hit what you were supposed to hit. That's where the word sin comes from, missing the mark. But David takes it a step further, as we should as well. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. So here's why I bring that up. If we say sin is missing the mark, that's a great start. But then it should be followed with another question. Who's determining the bullseye? Because if, 
it's somebody else that determines the bullseye, then that changes the sin. That's why David does not say, I sinned against Bathsheba. Some of, some of us sometimes read that, I'm like, oh, he didn't, he totally left Bathsheba out of this that he did to her. He didn't even include Uriah. He killed Uriah. Why didn't he say, I've sinned against Bathsheba and I sinned against Uriah? Because they don't set the bullseye. Absolutely, what David did hurt them and impacted them in devastating ways. But David's getting to the root and said, no, God, you set the standard. You set the bullseye. And what you have set, I missed. We can get into trouble with that because if we're not careful, if we allow the people around us to set that bullseye and we say, well, I'm sorry I sinned against you. Well, why was it a sin? Well, because you hurt me or you hurt my feelings. Like, I mean, I've hurt people fe people's feelings before, but that was through a conversation that was needed to be had. I hurt my kids' feelings all the time. <laughs> Does that mean I've sinned against them? No, they don't get to set the bullseye. What happens if we let culture set the bullseye? All of a sudden, what I do is wrong or is right, but it's based on what other people are, are saying. What happens if I'm the one that creates the bullseye? Well, that wasn't wrong at all. Well, why wasn't it wrong? Well, because I'm the one that chooses what the bullseye is. That's dangerous. That's called anarchy. We don't choose the bullseye. So for David to say, I have sinned against you. God, you're the one that chooses the bullseye. You're the one that chooses the standard, and I missed the mark. And it's in your eyes that I've done what's evil. Not based on what I see, not based on what I think, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. God, based on what you see, I have sinned. It's not based on anything or anyone else. It's got to be based on God. And David recognizes that, and he realizes that. Next section, this is where we see a transition. So we went from, I need a savior, to I'm a sinner, meaning I've missed the mark that God has put in place. Now we see a transition. Verse seven, David writes, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. It's beautiful language here. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Remember that, we're gonna talk about it. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. The language, even the words that David uses here is, is very intentional. And he goes from, I need a savior to I'm a sinner. And he keeps using that same word for sin in this third part, but he adds something in front of the word. It's interesting. The word sin in this part, we translate it purify, but all it is is the word sin with D in front of it. Meaning David is saying, Descend me. I love that. I have sinned. I've rebelled against you. I've missed the mark. I've sinned against you and I've done evil in your sight. So, God, I need you to descend me. I've sinned. I need you to descend me. That's where we get the word purify from. But what I tell you to remember the idea of what that you have, do you remember the word there? Broken me. Let's talk about this for a second. Because that doesn't sound very loving, that doesn't sound very kind. That doesn't sound very gracious and merciful and forgiving for David to say, not I've been broken. David says, God, you have broken me. So it's not that I'm just having a hard time. It's God, you have broken me. David recognizes another truth here. Brokenness precedes restoration. You cannot have restoration if you don't first experience the brokenness. You have to have the brokenness first. And that's what David is writing through. He's writing from a place of being broken. We don't like to talk about that part. 
We don't want the broken part. We just want God to move into our lives and to like just fix everything and like make the adjustments or the tweaks, but like don't break anything, but just like fix it, make it better. And we forget that God truly needs to break us before he rebuilds us, before he restores us. A couple months ago, it was early May, um, Becky and I woke up to um, an upstairs bathroom flood in our house. The upstairs kids' bathtub was overflowing. Awesome. It was great. And if you know anything about water, especially when it's on the second floor and gravity's involved, it doesn't just stay in that one place, does it? No, so that overflowing bathtub then went out into the entire bathroom upstairs, which went out into the entire hallway, which then went down into the dining room to the point where our light was leaking, to the point where it got on the table and the floor, and then it went all over, right? That water did not stay where it should have, <laughs> right? We walked downstairs, like, why is it in my kitchen? It was up in the upstairs bathroom. Why do I have water in my kitchen? Because that's the devastation of a flood. Same devastation as sin. It doesn't stay isolated and it doesn't stay small. It will continue to impact everything it touches and every one it's around. So we did what anybody would probably do. We start calling the mitigation companies like, uh, help, water, place, house, everywhere. And so they show up and they did something just, just it, it, it blew my mind a little bit. And if you've not gone through a flood, I'm going to prepare you in case you do. Um, I was thinking they would come in, they would dry some things out and then repaint my walls. That's not what they do. They come in and they gut your house. I mean, they come, I mean, I'm watching these guys coming in with sledgehammers and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's just water guys. It's not gonna hit back. Don't worry about it. Like, no, 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 we got it. So they start pulling out the tile upstairs. Like, Why are you messing with the tile? Well, because there's a sub floor and we want to make sure that that gets dried out. I'm like, okay. And then I go downstairs and they're like pulling out all the sheetrock in the ceiling. Like, wait, wait, I didn't get over there. It was just over here. Well, we need to make sure it didn't get on this side. So we're going to dry all of this area out. Then they start ripping up all the floors. Oh, it didn't get all over there. I was like, no, but it seeped underneath. So we got to pull everything out. They pulled up all the tile, all the carpet, all the flooring, all the sheetrock. And I'm like, it was just in the bathtub. And if I had just said, no, 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 just dry it out and paint the house, dry it up and cover it up, there's no way it would have lasted. They said, sir, we can't do that because it's going to mold and it's going to make things worse later on. So we need to take all of this out. We need to make it look worse before we make it look better. There has to be brokenness before there's rebuild. There has to be brokenness before there's restoration. That's what David is experiencing. So the next section is a beautiful picture of what the restored life looks like. When we say, I need a savior because I'm a sinner. And so God, break me so that you can restore me, we get a beautiful picture of what that life looks like. Let me read through it, and then I want to go back with you, and I want to talk about each of them so that you don't miss it. Verse 10, here's the life of someone that's been broken and now restored. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach you, teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Let's go back through these real quick. What does it look like when God breaks you and then restores you? The first that David points out, God will reshape your heart to match his. David doesn't say tweak my heart. He doesn't say adjust my heart. 
He doesn't say patch up my heart. He says create. I need something new. What I had was evil and deceitful. So God, break my heart, and then would you reshape it, but make it match your heart, not me and my wants and my desires. Reshape my heart so it matches yours. When David says, renew a loyal spirit within me, what's that a picture of? It's really a picture of confidence, trust, and dependence, right? It's David saying, I can't do this without you. So I need every single day, I need to have a loyal spirit for you. I need to be faithful for you. So what does that look like? Here's how I would describe it, that when you are broken and then restored, God will deepen your dependence on him. When you give your life to Christ, it's not, oh, great, things are going to be a whole lot easier now. So glad you're following me. It's, oh, I'm so glad you're following me. Let me give you some opportunities to grow your trust. Do you know how you grow trust and grow faithfulness? By having to have trust and have faithfulness. And then you see God provide and you see God be faithful. You see God be trustworthy. So then I'm going to deepen my relationship with him. I'm going to trust him more next time. So when you are restored after your brokenness, look for God to give you opportunities to deepen your dependence on him. David says, don't banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, I need you with me. I don't just want to know about you. I don't want to just know of you. I need you with me. And the image I would want in your head is that when God moves in, everything else moves out. When he breaks you and restores you, he is going to move into your heart and move everything else out. We love, and we've gotten super good at this, we love compartmentalizing our lives. So we have my faith and my walk with Jesus, and then I have my family, and then I have school, and then I have my work, and then I have my friends, and then I have my community, I have my hobbies, like I have all these different parts in my life. And we love to tell God which parts he's allowed to like move into. God, here's the ones you're allowed to have. Those are off limits. I like it exactly how it is. But that's not how he works. He breaks you and he restores you and he moves in and moves everything else out. It's not, well, this is my God part of my life and this is my non-God part of my life. That changes our desires. That changes our priorities. That changes how we think, what we say, how we act, because he moves in, his presence is with us, and everything else changes and moves out. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Two key parts here is the joy and the salvation part. So often we want to have joy, like, God, like, I need some joy, like, things aren't going very well, and even right there, it's a contradiction. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is situational and circumstantial. Joy is not. Joy is based on what David says here, your salvation. In other words, when you are restored, and you're living a new life within Jesus, God will give you joy that's based on what he's already done for you, not what you're hoping he'll do later. Our joy is not based on what I'm wanting or what I'm even needing or what I'm praying for. It's, you saved me. God, you love me so much, you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to take my sins away, to descend me. We know the wages of sin is death, and so instead of me paying that price, Jesus, you paid that price for me. You took my sins away, and with that sin went away all of the shame and went away all the guilt. And when you died, you were buried, and you were risen three days later, that gives me the hope of eternal life with you, that Jesus, you are more than a conqueror of, of sin. You're a conqueror of death itself. So I have hope now and for all of eternity. That's where our joy comes from. It's not because things aren't going well today. 
So restore to me the joy. Let me be reminded of what you've already done for me. The next line says, and make me willing to obey you. That is not a, God, make me a robot so I always do what you want me to do. That's not what this means. David realizes something. This is going to happen again. This isn't a, oh, man, I'm glad this whole like adultery thing's out of my way. Never going to be a problem again. No, he realizes, I was tempted once before, I'm going to be tempted again. This was an issue before, it's going to be an issue again. If you think that once you give your life to Christ, all your temptations go away, sorely mistaken. Right? We come to know Christ and he gives us the strength to move through them. He gives us the power of his grace and mercy to be forgiven from them. But we still struggle with them. So here, the image I would want you to have is, when you are restored, God will lead and guide you because there will always be a next time. There's always going to be an opportunity for you to veer off the wrong path. And we need God to be the one giving us direction. We need God to be the one leading us in the right way. That's not based on ourselves. We cannot put a full confidence in our own abilities. We need to say, no, I need you to help me obey. I need you to help me know what's right. And I need you to lead and guide me because I'm going to struggle again. I'm going to be tempted again. And I'm going to go through this again. Last part, he says, then I'll teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. This is the beauty of how God works. He's going to use you and your experiences and your story and your past to help somebody else. God will use you to help others who are where you've been. The story of David we read out of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. David has an incredible testimony to show, man, don't do it like that. But let me show you God's grace and mercy along the way. God allows us in our stories to be useful for other people when they're sitting in the middle of what you've already gone through. That's the picture of a restored life. If you read through the rest of Psalm 51, you know what the point is? Praising God, worshiping him because of what he's done, because of his has said, because of who he is, our response is always worship. I love that's how Psalm 51 ends. Even though it's all about his confession of his sinful actions, it doesn't end with, oh, I can't believe I did that. It ends with, God, you are so good and you are so great because of your has said, because of your unfailing love and your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Oh, I worship you and I praise you. And our entire city is going to praise you as well. That's how it ends. This last Thursday, you know about all the storms that went through. And depending on where you live, man, just south of here got hit crazy hard. In fact, we were at a home yesterday helping them move trees out of the way and helping them begin the process of the brokenness, and then the restoration. We began that with a family yesterday. In the midst of seeing all the pictures and all the devastation and all the destruction, uh, Becky and I have a friend who lived right next to us, uh, pretty close to us, and she sent us this picture, and this was almost at 9 o'clock on Thursday evening. Man, and that picture just hit me. Because of all the pictures of devastation we had seen Thursday evening, then we see that. The reason I bring that up is because I don't know your story. I don't know what you're in the middle of. I don't know the sins of your past and the sins you're struggling with. But man, I know mine. And it's horrific, isn't it? David recognized the, the destruction and the devastation and the realities of his sin. And it's dark. But that's not where the story ends. That's what happens after. Because of Jesus... In his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, we have hope, we have peace, we have joy, and we have love because of his forgiveness. So don't get stuck in the woe is me and my sin. Let's acknowledge it. Let's recognize it. 
Let's confess it for what it is. I need a savior because I'm a sinner and I need to be broken so I can be restored and my response is worship because of the hope that I find in Jesus. The last song that we're gonna sing together, the song title is Run to the Father. And there's a fact about running, whether you like running or not, whether you want to run or not, there's a fact about running. You have to be standing in order to run. You can't sit and run. Do you know that? It doesn't work. It looks really weird if you try. So if we're gonna run to the Father, I need to have you standing first. So you, I'm already standing, so now it's on you. If we're going to run to the Father, we need to be standing. But let me have you ask yourself a few questions. Why are you standing and why are you getting ready to run to the Father? Are you going to run to the Father because you recognize your need for a Savior? Are you going to run to the Father because you recognize the devastation of your sin? Are you running to the Father because it's only against him you've sinned against? Maybe you've been making your own bullseyes. Maybe you've been letting other people determine your bullseyes. And you recognize, God, you're the only bullseye that, that I'm aiming for. So you run to him. Maybe you run to him and you're going to allow him to break you. Then you run to him and you allow him to restore you. Maybe you run to him and you worship him with all your heart and all your might, not because it's a religious activity or a duty we, we do as part of church, but you worship because you see the story of your life and how he has changed you, created in you a new heart. Whatever your reason is, run to him. Romans chapter six tells us this about running to him and why. When he, Jesus, died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you should also consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So your whole body is an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you and I live under the freedom of God's grace. Jesus, thank you for that fact, that we get to live in the freedom of your grace. There is no sin that takes us too far from you. There's no road that we have taken that we cannot get back to you. Even when we go the wrong way, there's always a way back and it begins with us crying out to you, our Father, and your has said, your character, that you are full of unfailing love, that you are gracious and kind, that you love us, you meet us where we're at, but you refuse to leave us that way. In this moment, we run to you because we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.